Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, Tom, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on ARC's FYI for Your Innovation podcast. We have Tom Whitehead today. We're really lucky to speak to him. He is the father of Emily Whitehead, among many other things. Emily Whitehead was the first pediatric patient to ever receive CAR-T therapy, and he is also the founder of the Emily Whitehead Foundation. So thanks, Tom, for being here. Yeah, it's an honor. I appreciate you having me on. Of course. I hate that we're going back here because I'm sure these are all very painful, painful memories. But if you could bear with me, we'll do a few painful ones and then a few very happy ones. Sounds good. Perfect. Thanks for your willingness to talk about this. So obviously, Emily was diagnosed with acute lymphobastic leukemia, and she was five or six years old when this happened. She had just turned five years old and was healthy May 2nd of 2010. And then healthy up till May 27th, which was going into Memorial Day weekend. And overnight, she had a lot of leg pains. And by the next day, she was on a morphine pump at the Hershey Children's Hospital diagnosed with cancer. Did you know anything about acute lymphobastic leukemia before this or anything about stats? No. Okay. No, but we learned very quickly. And my wife works in research at Penn State University. Oh, I didn't know that. So she had all the research skills to look up about it. And our doctor told us as soon as she was diagnosed, he said, this is the garden variety kind of leukemia. This is the one if you have to have a kid with cancer, you want to have 85 to 90% chance if you go through 26 months of chemotherapy, she'll be fine and she'll grow up to be a grandmother and you'll get past this, but it's going to be a rough two years. Exactly. So that's how we got started. So what is your wife research? I didn't know about that. Uh, well, she has her master's in nutrition, but she just works with the professors at Penn State on whatever research that they need done. And currently, she's working with senior citizens and doing some research on trying to keep caregivers and their spouse with back pain from getting addicted to opioids. Oh, wow. That's really, really important research. Your wife's name is Carrie. Did she ever do any research into, just because she's in nutrition, I know when I was at Sloan, we did some research into how food impacts maybe medication, when you take medication, when you take chemo, different foods that might be better or worse for people who are on chemotherapy. Did Carrie ever dive deep into that hole or was she pretty relying on the doctors in that sphere? No, no, she knew all about it. She had all the food safety training. So we went into much more of a cleansing mode and no bacteria mode and avoided like strawberries that might have bacteria on them unless they were cooked or cut up. And she already had all that training. She absolutely wanted us all to eat healthier from that time on to give Emily the best chance of having the medicine work for her. Oh, wow. That's amazing. 
So obviously we know that Emily wasn't as lucky as the statistic outlays the 85 to 90% pretty much curate. If you get a childhood cancer, there can't be a good one, but if there could be, this would be it. So obviously we know Emily unfortunately relapsed twice, obviously meaning that the treatments just weren't working. So can you describe a little bit about what sort of the treatment was like? She didn't get to that 26 mark. So what was that like for you guys? We noticed right from the beginning, once she started outpatient treatment after the first week, that we started to hear quite often that, oh, this almost never happens. She started on May 28th, and I should have started the story with two weeks before she was diagnosed with cancer. She had a full physical from her pediatrician who said she's perfectly healthy and looks great. And then she had bruises within a couple weeks, and now we're diagnosed. And She started maybe two outpatient chemotherapies to knock her immune system down, and then she ended up with infections in both legs on June 11th of the same year of 2010. We had the chief of surgery at Hershey take us into a room and say, you have to save your daughter's life tonight, and I'm going to have to do surgery on infections in her legs, and I might have to amputate both legs. And so we were like, what happened here? We were just told this is the garden variety kind. He said, we haven't seen these kind of infections in many years. Some doctors have never seen it, but they took her into surgery and saved her legs. So we were very thankful for that. But she spent most of that induction phase then in the PICU. She had wound vax in each leg and was in horrific pain and they had to pump her up on steroids. So it made her angry. And so it didn't start the way they told us it would, but she did get into remission after that first month. So They said, hey, you've had one of the toughest inductions we've ever had, but some people just have a rough patch and then things go okay. So we were hopeful that at that time the chemotherapy worked. We got in remission and then, but she always seemed like maybe a little more nauseous sometimes and other times they'd say, well, this medicine will knock her down for two days. And three hours later, she was playing in the playroom and felt fine. So she didn't seem to react the way they would always suggest. And they said, well, everybody's different, but we're in remission and we got out to 16 months out around October of 2011 is whenever we went for routine blood work locally here in the State College area. And Dr. Jim Powell, her local oncologist, it was the first time in her treatment that he didn't call me the same day with the results of her blood work. One of the craziest things that happened at that time is Emily said the day before that, that she thought she could feel the blast cells growing in her knees again. Wow. She said, I think the cancer's back. And it was. So routine blood work. He called the following day and said, we've tried to discount it. But unfortunately, this almost never happens when chemotherapy works for these kids and gets them in remission. But unfortunately, she's relapsed. So now everything is going to change. That was worse than the initial diagnosis for sure. For sure. But you, your wife, Carrie, I mean, I commend you guys. You were extremely persistent and you found a trial, a clinical trial that you hoped would save Emily's life. It's a phase one trial at the time at Philadelphia at the Children's Hospital. And I used to work at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I just remember how difficult it was for parents to find resources to find clinical trials. So was this suggested by your doctors? Is this something you found on your own? Yeah, we found it on our own. We had noticed that other parents that were at the hospital, if Hershey ran out of options, they seemed to end up at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So my wife, Carrie, went online and filled out a second opinion form as soon as she relapsed the first time to make sure they agreed that bone marrow transplant was the next best option 
because they told us that day now she has less than a 30% chance of survival. She doesn't have any siblings, so you need to identify a non-related donor and try to get her to transplant. We filled out that second opinion form and went down very quickly. They called us the next day and they said, at this time, we're going to do exactly what Hershey's going to do and identify a non-related donor. We did find a 10 out of 10 protein match, but we ended up never meeting the donor. We tried to go to transplant and their goal was to get her there the first week of February of 2012. And the donor actually delayed and said they weren't available to give their cells until the last week of February. Oh, no. So mid-February, she relapsed again and then no longer qualified for the trial. So when Hershey said it's time to take her home on hospice, I paged them one more time at CHOP. And they said, this is amazing you paged us today because we got permission to try the T-cells yesterday. Oh, wow. So we transferred down there on March 1st of 2012. And then that's when we met Dr. Stephen Grupp, who was in charge of the trial. And he brought his team in and explained to us exactly what they were going to do an extract T-cells out of Emily's apheresis catheter. So we went to surgery and had a catheter put in her neck and they extracted the cells. And then she had to do the clofarabine round of chemotherapy. And they told us that that dose of clofarabine would probably kill an adult. But that's the only way they could slow down her cancer. So that knocked her immune system out. So she had an ANC of zero and stayed in isolation in her hospital room there in Philadelphia for the next six weeks while they took her cells off to the lab to train them. Did you guys ever hear of a website called clinicaltrials.gov or did you have yeah. any resources that you guys used that were really helpful to you? Well, a lot of parents have a lot of trouble using that website. My wife, Carrie, knew how to use it because of her research background. But we actually had the recommendation that the CAR T-cell trial was ready at CHOP from Dr. Susan Rheingold at CHOP. So we went down a second time for a second opinion before we actually transferred down there. And we turned down another trial that was the only trial open because it didn't feel right to us. And I'll never forget, she said, Emily's about 48 hours from organ failure. So you're turning down the only trial that we have to offer and you better do something soon or she's not going to be here. And that trial probably would have taken her life. That trial failed and was oh, wow. toxic to children. We probably saved her life there. But before we left that day, she said, there's this CAR T-cell trial that we are waiting for permission to try, and we think Emily would be the perfect patient. Unfortunately, it's going to take us a couple more months to get approval to try it, and she's not going to live that long, but I just wanted you to know about it. So when I called her back, it was amazing that she said, wait, hey, we got permission to try the T-cells a lot earlier than we expected, and we just found out yesterday, and you paged us. So we think you should come right down and try it. And by then we knew standard treatment wasn't going to work. So we were actually excited that that gave us hope. And did you understand the difference between the phases of clinical trials? So we know this was a phase one trial. So did you understand what they're testing in a phase one, why that's really different than let's say a phase two or a phase three trial? Yeah. One of our doctors at Hershey was really frustrated that we were going to take her down to Philadelphia. And he came in the room on the second trip down and he said, I want to educate you. A phase one trial will never save your daughter's life. It's just to learn dosing. So it might help someone in the future. And then if something works, they take it to phase two and they add more patients. And if there's a pretty good benefit from it, it'll move to phase three, where we do a lot of patients in multiple centers and then it goes to become FDA approved. So he said, I think you're taking her down there to suffer until she passes away. 
he gave us that education, but Emily was patient one in a phase one trial and here she is today, nine years cancer-free. It's crazy. So phase ones, notoriously, as you mentioned, are really a dose escalation study. So how much of a dose can we give to a patient safely without any toxicity? So we typically aren't that interested in efficacy. So what he said must have been very striking, but obviously your instincts were 100% correct. And even knowing that that first trial just didn't feel right, and now hindsight is obviously 2020, but having that information now must feel pretty remarkable. Yeah. And at the time, we weren't sure, but we were just trusting our instincts. We look back now and Even Dr. Carl June told me, he said, you know, you made six decisions during those weeks. And if you change any one of them, Emily's not with us. And he said, twice you went against the doctors. So whatever was guiding you there, he said, I'm a science guy. And he said, I don't pray myself. But he said, I believe in miracles now. Oh, wow. And just because you mentioned Carl June, who is one of the most prolific scientists in my mind, how has your experience been with working with him? And have you sort of followed his career and research in the past nine, 10 years? When Emily, once she was treated and they thought she was going to pass away from the cytokine release syndrome, and she was in the PICU and the doctors were telling me to call in the family. And I said, hey, she's going to be cancer. So just keep trying to help her. And Once she got through that and was healing up in the ICU, Carrie and I asked one day, can we go see the lab where they grew these cells? And they were ecstatic because they said nobody ever asked to come see us. So we went and met Carl that day. And then Dr. Bruce Levine that actually grew the cells took us into the clean space. We got all dressed up and got to see how they actually make the cells. And Carl cried when he met us and said, you're very brave. And I'm sorry, Emily got that sick. Nobody should get that sick. He said, I've never seen anyone get that sick and survive. And then later he talked to us that the one night he actually wrote the email explaining why Emily died, thinking he would be sending it first thing in the morning and he never had to hit send. Oh, wow. When, what part of was that in her journey? So that was the CRS overwhelmed her system. She was on an oscillating ventilator. At the time she was on three pressers and her blood pressure was 53 over 29. They just said her lungs had failed, and they said, there's no coming back now. And the next day is when they offered to try the tocilizumab to shut off the IL-6 protein, which saved her life. Wow. Just incredible the way things happened. And then since then, Carl and his wife, Lisa, are like family to us. So we keep in touch often, text back and forth. We get to attend events with them, and we've spoken together all over the world at different events to spread awareness and help advocate to help all these treatments become more globally accessible. That's amazing. You mentioned CRS or cytokine release syndrome. I think it's just interesting for people to understand that this is an overreaction of your immune system and where it's actually your immune system that because the reaction is so strong, it's actually hurting your chances of survival. And this is actually very relevant to what's going on in the world today because the global pandemic of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, a lot of patients are also having a cytokine release syndrome, which is what's sometimes killing them, not just the virus. It's interesting. It was overwhelming to Emily's system. It was definitely the scariest part of her treatment. And like you said, in phase one is to learn about dosing. No patient since Emily has received the dose that she got. The FDA-approved dose, which turned into become Kimraya, is actually, I believe it's 40% of the dose that Emily received. They learned very quickly that that was too much. But everything that happened during that time, we learned from, and that's why we're out now. We created a private Facebook group, so when 
parents are experiencing that now they have somebody to talk to that went through it already. So we have over 300 families in that group that can all have access to the next parents going through it so they can ask questions and get answers in real time. That's incredible. And what you've created is a real patient support where, as you mentioned, it's needed. A lot of patients don't know about resources like clinicaltrials.gov where you could find clinical trials. But as someone who worked in clinical trials, I would get phone calls all the time from patients who or caregivers who didn't understand always the medical jargon that's used on that website. So it can be quite difficult to navigate. So you guys were really lucky too to have Carrie and that medical knowledge that she brought to it. And sort of speaking on that medical knowledge, going to the lab, seeing the cells, meeting with Dr. June, Carl, if you had to describe CAR-T back then or CAR-T now, has your understanding changed dramatically of what it was? And if you knew then what you know now, do you think you would have been quite as brave to have gone through with the decision to participate in the clinical trial? Yeah, I think I've learned a lot. I had a forced education on it. I don't think it would have changed what we did. I think I understand a lot more now of what she went through. Back then, it was just either try this or you're going to take her home and watch her pass away. I didn't think that was an option, but I go back to Dr. June and all the doctors involved, and we've traveled around to labs all over the world that are trying to improve this for everyone in the industry, not just the pen doctors, but to learn more about it so we can help educate the parents. And we're having a tough time, too, getting the younger, smaller town oncologists to send their patients to these. There's still some education to do because those parents come to us and say, help me advocate so my local doctor will send me to this. So sometimes we have to send them our videos or something. I mean, we've done a lot of media stuff, so a lot more people know about it now. It's much more prevalent. It's in the news a lot now, but it's been a tough road to get that awareness and advocacy out there. And we also created a search engine on our website on emilywhiteheadfoundation.org. So the normal parent that's stressed out in a cancer center can get on there and find the next immunotherapy trial when normal standard treatments aren't working. So Carrie worked on that and we got it down to where my parents are able to go on and actually use it and find a trial somewhere or at least get a phone number at a cancer center where they can reach out because a lot of those parents just want to talk to somebody that knows about the next trial. So we've put a lot of work into that as well. And we do have a search engine up that's much more easier to use. So we're very proud of that too. And it's helped some families find hope. That's incredible. Were your parents your test case? You were like, if they can do yeah. it, anyone can do it. Exactly. <laughs> Very not tech savvy. And they were able to get on there and say, my daughter, Emily, or my granddaughter, Emily has ALL. And can I find the next trial? And they brought up an active trial that they could have actually reached out to a center and asked some questions. So that's when we knew we were onto something. And what do you think about sort of, you mentioned traveling around to all the different labs all around the world. What do you think about the new innovations in CAR-T therapy? Because over the past nine, 10 years, they certainly haven't stayed stagnant. One of the big advances is going from liquid tumors like Emily's cancer, or now focusing on maybe going to solid tumors, which are a little bit more difficult to treat. They have a more difficult tumor microenvironment. But also, Emily had autologous therapy, meaning using her own cells, whereas now they're trying to see if they can do allogeneic therapy, so using donor-derived cells that are off the shelf and ready to go, so you don't actually have to go through that process of getting the cells taken out of your blood, just getting those T cells, getting them to be engineered, growing those cells, because that actually is quite a long time. And as you mentioned, Emily was so sick 
So having that therapy just off the shelf may have helped in terms of time frame. Yeah, I agree. I believe from what I've seen since Emily got better that when you use your own cells so far, I think they've had more success afterward with them working. But we know patients who passed away while they were growing their T-cells. One little boy passed away the day before he got his T-cells, traveled all across the world and got there. And we also have helped families get through that and had their children pass away and had their children cancer-free when they passed away. And they didn't survive the side effects or the infection they got or the pneumonia they got in waiting. So I think to make it more globally accessible for more people, these innovations have to happen where the machines can maybe do it right at the centers, wherever they are. The less time vein to vein will definitely save a lot of lives that we already have met. And it'll also bring the cost down. It's heartbreaking to me. I get messages all the time from South America and to hear from a mother or get on a Zoom with them. I take these calls and they're crying saying, it's just because of where I live that my child's going to die. They would qualify for these treatments. But when you have a family, I had a doctor reach out from India and we were able to help advocate and they successfully made it to the United States during COVID. And they've been in two CAR-T trials, finally got remission and they're headed to a bone marrow transplant in the coming weeks. But when you're successful with helping some of these families that really they would have already lost their children or you take that initial call and six months later, I have a dad call me and says, because you took the call. My child's a lot. I mean, what you're doing is incredible for patients and families. It's really a true calling. Yeah. And, and back at that time, I just decided that we had a lot of parents that went through the same thing as we did and they lost their kids. And we had such a miracle and great outcome that I said, I'll spend the rest of my days trying to pay it forward and help these other families have the same outcome. Yeah. And you have a full-time job. So, so it's, yeah. this, is, this is your full So we do. I'm full-time on the power lines. I'm a lineman that comes out and covers emergencies. So when a house is burning down, we have to shut the power off or there's power lines down. Or when your house is out of power, I show up first. So I do that for 50 plus hours a week and then work over 20 hours a week on the foundation. And then we travel and do keynote talks on my vacation days. No, no. So you <laughs> from the power line work that you do and then also on your vacations. So it's pretty well, We have fun doing it. During Emily's treatment, I was in charge of hope because Carrie was in charge of the science. And I said, we have to smile once every day and look for something positive and stay positive. And when she got better, we just told people, if you want us to come to an event or come tour your lab, we will absolutely do that and inspire your team. And then you have to do something completely separate that's fun for her. So everywhere we travel, we separate those events and do something fun. What was one of the fun things that someone did or the coolest or most interesting one? <laughs> we went to a meeting in Davos, Switzerland. And Emily's fun thing at that time, she just said, I want to swim in a pole and I want to see some cows with a bell around their neck because she loves cows. Aww. Carl June, we were going to take a tram up into the Alps he said, I walk it. So he walks up because he exercises a lot and does extreme sports. But he found some cows with a bell around their neck and told us where to go see them. And then we stayed at the Intercontinental Hotel and it had a hot tub you could walk down into inside and automatic doors opened up and we could go outside and sit in the water and look up at the Alps. Just the view we got there and having Emily see some cows in Switzerland, that was a pretty cool thing. We don't ask for too much, but 
We've been making some great memories on these trips that I'll never forget. That's awesome. Yeah, and being able to travel with your family is pretty remarkable and special. I had a lot of memories. And then when I'm traveling, I don't have to get called out for power line emergencies. So it takes some stress off me when we can travel. For sure. And so I'm going to roll back a little bit here, but we talked about vein to vein time. So just for anyone who doesn't know what that means, that's basically when they extract the T cells to when they can put them back in. So they needed to take them out, grow them, engineer them, put them back in. And so that time can be pretty significant. How long was Emily's vein to vein time? Six weeks. So We transferred down there, I'm going to say March 1st of 12. I remember the consent happened around March 6th. And not long after that, they did surgery, put the apheresis catheter in and extracted them. And then she got them back on April 17th, 18th and 19th. And all they did since she was patient one is split up her dose. So it was 10% on day one, 30% on day two, and then 60% on day three. But those are dates that we'll never forget. She got really sick and almost passed away on the ventilator. And then she woke up from that 14-day coma on her seventh birthday. Wow. So we took her home on June 1st. But she was declared cancer-free on May 10th of 2012. So it was 23 days after April 17th on her first dose, she was cancer-free. And now she's nine years past. It's crazy. And this is the result that we're always hoping for and aiming for. So what would you say to the scientists that are working on genetic therapies now? Well, I tell all of them, first of all, from families from all over the world, that you're giving hope to a big thank you. But don't give up whenever Carl June was out of funding for a while. And he's told me since then that the fellows that were working with some of his patients called the patients catastrophes. <laughs> and there was a lot of reasons that he should have stopped, but he never did. He said, I didn't want to just to like hit a single in my research. I wanted to hit a home run. He believed in it and he stuck with it. And he said he even lost his first wife to cancer. But that's when he focused really on turning what he knew into a cure. And he said he felt that that was all leading him towards treating Emily. He said it changed his whole life whenever they had that success. Of course. And what kind of role do you think? Obviously, science played a massive role in Emily getting better and getting cured. But what role did hope play for you guys? Because as you say, you went in and you said you had to smile every day. And there are reports to suggest that, of course, the science is very, very important. And we need that. But anything you can do aside from that is also beneficial. So we talked about sort of the nutrition. But what role do you think sort of hope played for you guys specifically? That's ended up being why we wrote the book, Praying for Emily, The Faith, Science, and Miracles That Saved Our Daughter, because we know without the doctors and science and research that she wouldn't be here. But I was doing a lot of praying at the time and asking people, send your prayers or positive thoughts if you don't pray. I think anybody that can do that, positive energy, I think, makes a huge difference. And I talked to Carrie weeks before we went there, but I said, I just have seen it two nights in a row, and I'm almost positive this is going to happen. But I think Emily's going to beat her cancer and be in the bone marrow transplant hallway at CHOP, and we're going to have to teach her to walk again. And that was several weeks before it actually happened. And then when they told us she's going to pass away tonight, they looked at me like I was the most naive parent in the world when I said, it's hard for me to explain, but she's going to beat this cancer. I'm sure of it. And Dr. Berg, who's in charge of the PICU at CHOP, took me in the hallway and he said, there's a one in a thousand chance your daughter's alive when the sun comes up. 
you better call your family in. And I said, I'll see you at rounds tomorrow. And a couple of days later, he was saying, is there anything else you would like to share with us, Mr. Whitehead? <laughs> and then the very last day in the PICU, the charge nurse came in and said, this is a big day for you. You're going back downstairs. And by the way, Dr. Grupp, her pediatric oncologist, is on service with the bone marrow transplant patients. And he wants you in that hallway so he can keep an eye on Emily. And she has severe atrophy from a 14-day coma. So you're going to have to teach her to walk again. We were just like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's kind of what keeps me on the path that I'm supposed to be making a difference now and helping others and bringing more funding to this research. It's pretty incredible. And obviously, you started the Emily Whitehead Foundation, which has helped so many people. I saw that you guys were working on the Believe Ball, which I think is really, really sweet and impressive. I think the first one is in 2017. There will yeah. probably be one September 2021, hopefully. Can you tell us a little bit like about the Believe Ball and just what you hope to help families and patients achieve? We were getting to go to a lot of really cool events, even in Hollywood, and Emily was getting to meet a lot of celebrities. And when we started our foundation, we wanted to make sure that money that was made from her story was going to go back to funding this same research. We found out that some of the bigger foundations were using her story, and then they wouldn't offer it to the pediatric oncologists that were trying to apply for it. So we decided to do it on our own. And Emily said one day, these other children that get treated, they don't get to go to these fun events. So we decided right then, let's hold our own gala and make it all about the kids, especially the CAR-T kids. We had over 35 families show up for our first one in 2017. And then we brought people from your industry and even investors in to sponsor it. And if they sponsored that family to come, they got to sit with that family. And then it didn't cost the families anything. And these people that are investing or working on the science or the doctors get to meet these patients or even the researchers that say, I'm back in an office all day doing paperwork and I don't get to see the difference that my work makes. So having all those families together the first time, we had many people get back to us and it's the most inspiring event I've ever been to. So we wanted to do it again in person last year and COVID hit. So we just filmed all day yesterday. We have a production team making a virtual event for this year. So we want it to be first class. And we're going to include some of the new inspiring stories that we've learned recently, including one family that had their son live another nine months after he received CAR-T therapy for his DIPG, which we know was a brain cancer that almost no one survives. So their family's going to share their story on there. And we're expanding. We're getting international recognition as our foundation, but we're working very hard to grow with that recognition so we can have a bigger impact. Because like I said, if I had the money and I could fly down to South America and get some of these families that message me or that I speak to on Zoom, it shouldn't happen that just because of where they live, they can't get to a treatment that would save their child too. When they have pretty much, they qualify for the treatment, they just can't get to it. We're going to keep working until it's globally available. And I've seen, I'm impressed with the companies that are working on it are putting a lot of money into making that happen. What you're doing is truly remarkable and really takes a lot out of you. So the amount of time and effort that you put into it is really inspiring. Thank you. And just because you mentioned COVID and sort of its effects that it's having on the world, I think the people that we don't think about enough are the people who are immunocompromised 
they're having a significant impact because of coronavirus. They are certainly at risk for getting COVID and getting severe COVID and it creating problems for them. And they're certainly feeling really nervous and scared as a subgroup of the population that I think it's not discussed enough what we can do for those people. I've heard that Emily has been an advocate for people to get the vaccine and she got the vaccine. So do you have any details on sort of the analysis when she got the vaccine and how she's been reaching out to other immunocompromised patients to help advocate for them to do so as well? It was pretty tough on her. She lost two years when she had cancer, pretty much at home all the time. And now this last year, she's been in mostly all the time. She actually went into the PA Charter Cyber School to do her schooling. And as soon as she turned 16, we had her signed up to get the vaccine because we understand that without science, Emily wouldn't be here and we trust in the science. But it's hard for her. A lot of kids her age won't get vaccinated. So then it still limits how much time she can spend with them. So we're not trying to force it on anybody, but we're just trying to educate people and say, if more people would do this, the world could get back together quicker. I'm immunocompromised myself because I have Crohn's disease and I'm on Remicade for that. And I also have skin cancer. So it's been kind of tough on our family. And But it's the same as when Emily had cancer. We come up with risk versus benefit. And sometimes it's worth the risk to go out a little bit because you don't want to just live in prison all the time at home either. But we're also advocating to follow the safety precautions like all parents are taught when their kids have cancer. And that gives you a much better chance of not getting it. But Emily got the Pfizer vaccine and actually got 102 fever after her second dose. And we've had the lab studying her blood after because she wanted to be part of that science to see if it's really working for all the CAR-T patients. And we found out that she doesn't have any antibodies because there's no B cells in her blood, but she actually did have a T cell response. And so they do feel that she could get some benefit from that. And this would be one of the first vaccines that would make a difference since her treatment because of the new way of making it. What Emily's doing for the community as well is just so incredible. And the fact that she's still so interested in being a part of the science and creating more and giving more back. It's really pretty interesting and incredible. She's one of my heroes. Oh, mine too. Mine too. But Emily's now 16 years old, as you mentioned. She has driver's permit, so watch out, Dad. She has an adorable chihuahua named Luna. And I think you mentioned she was also interested in some other animals, so definitely an animal lover. She is a 4.0 GPA student, and she's really traveling all over the world to help everyone else, which is pretty incredible. But when I listened to a lot of her interviews, her doctors were calling her Emma and not Emily. So just curious if you can expand a little bit on why there were two different names. It's a great story. When she was really sick, I went in the room one day and we had always just called her Emily or I call her M or Emmy. And she just said, Dad, I want to be called Emma from now on. And I said, oh, it's okay to have nicknames. Well, I'll call you Emma. And on that day, she said, no, I'm going to legally change my name to Emma as soon as I can. And when the doctors come in, I won't answer to them unless they call me Emma. And I said, okay, then we'll call you Emma. So all of her oncologists started calling her Emma. And when she first got better and it was in the international news, they were calling her Emma Whitehead. And once she got a long-term remission and got past cancer and was ready to move on, she came in one day and said, all right, I'm not Emma anymore. Emma was sick. I'm Emily again. So now I feel like myself again. So now I don't want to be called Emma anymore. 
So it really confuses people in the media, but that's just the way it was. And in her mind, Emma was who was sick, and now she's better and cured, and she was back to Emily again. So we didn't do it to confuse everybody, but when you do see in interviews when they talked about Emma at that time, that's who she was. It's pretty great. She obviously created almost like an alter ego or a different persona to actually help herself get through. So this was her sick persona, and now she's all healthy. So she's a completely different person. Yeah. And now she, when people ask her, even in interviews, she doesn't remember the pain she went through. She's blocked that out completely, but she can still talk about some of the fun things we did at that same time. And unfortunately, you can't block out that pain. So that's unfortunate. No, (laughs) that's why we try to help other parents because I've had parents call me from the ICU when their child has cytokine release syndrome and just say, how did you stay sane during this time? Because it's brutal. Is there any experience that you've had with a patient or a parent that stands out for you as being the most interesting, sad, different, anything that stands out for you? On a good note, Don McMahon's from the Atlanta area, and he had called me early on and said, my son was supposed to go to surgery tomorrow for a bone marrow transplant, and he saw Emily's Fire with Fire video on YouTube, and he said, I don't want, transplant's not going to work for me, I want that treatment. So I jumped on the phone with him that night, they turned down the surgery the next day, and months later, he called me and said, you're the first person I called, but Connor's in remission. Wow, that's amazing. So... Uh, Now, on another side, I had a call recently. We met another girl from California who I helped get into CAR T-cell, who became like a family member to us, Nicole Gallarty. She was in her 30s when we met her, and the CAR-T extended her life by five years. But after 10 years of fighting and multiple CAR-T trials, she just said to me one day, you calling extended my life by five years, but I've had enough. So I'm going to go home and see my family in California, and I'm going to stop treatment. And She passed away here, I think it was about a year and a half ago, and it was during COVID, though, so I guess in the last year. Those people touched us. It extended her life, but that makes me want to raise more funds. And and her goal was, when I'm going through, I wanted to save more children in the future so they don't have to go through this. Yeah, and I'm sorry for your loss, too. Those are tough, but it's even tougher when you hear from a family that can't get the treatment, and then they just stop messaging you because they didn't have a good outcome. That really pushes me to want to make a lot more money so we can someday go get them and or get the treatment set up in their country or somewhere where they can get it. I'm going to ask you a question that I probably know the answer to, but just hearing it in your own words, I think will be really powerful. But how has this experience changed your life? Well, it gave us a new purpose. Also, I look at the positive because we've traveled all over the world and made memories and I told Emily not too many 16-year-olds have been to so many countries, but it gave me a new purpose, and you're able to go out and make a difference. I always felt good in my power line job when you help people get back in power or shut a line off that maybe someone could get electrocuted, but when you can actually make a difference and help create new treatments that are less toxic for children in the future so they can stop doing just chemotherapy and radiation and these surgeries that are so many side effects later down in life. I never thought I would say that my daughter's the first child on earth with her immune system trained to be cancer. So I feel pretty blessed to be in this position. And I know what real stress is now. So sometimes people can cause stress in your life. And you're like, well, it's not really stressful when you think about it, of what it could be. It changed my perspective a lot too. I was really devastated the first time we walked under the cancer ward thinking we shouldn't be here. And then after Emily's leg infections, like a month later, 
we were celebrating getting back to the cancer floor and we still had her and she was still had both of her legs. So after you go through that, I feel like I've had a lot of military veterans say people call us heroes, but they tell Emily, you're a hero to us because we go through some tough times and everything, but we look up to people like you and that we got a lot of letters from soldiers and stuff. So that meant a lot to us too, but just changed everything in my life. Now I try to pay it forward every day and try to help make a difference in somebody else's life. Well, you definitely have the right attitude. And I think your whole family are, what you're doing is just remarkable. And you're all heroes to, I think me at least, and I'm sure a lot of other people that are listening. So just want to thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about this. I've certainly learned a lot and working on clinical trials previously, the amount that patients and caregivers and families go through is really difficult. And so being able to be the first pediatric patient ever to get RT and be in a phase one and knowing all the risks is really quite crazy that you guys went through with it, but obviously the right decision and you've taught the world and given so much back to everyone else. So it's pretty remarkable. I would like to say too, that I, I know you're in the investment part of it and without investors, none of this would be moving forward. Philanthropy got it started and then the FDA would help fund it and NIH, but Now, I've been to many meetings and heard the investors say it's pretty special when you can invest in something that has a good return back financially and also saves a lot of lives. So that's what's changing everything, all the investment that's now coming into this research and all the major cancer centers then can continue to move it forward, which means when they're successful, there's a lot more families being saved. Certainly. Even with COVID, I think people didn't understand how important biotech really is and its ability to actually create things that could be life-changing, life-saving. So I think COVID has definitely put that into the spotlight with the vaccines. So it's been an interesting year for biotech investments as well. Pretty crazy. Absolutely. And for everybody that's working all the time right now and moving it forward, we're very thankful for that. Amazing. We're going to continue to spread her story. I told Emily, it's very tough to talk about your story, but it's too important not to. Definitely. Well, thank you again so, so much for the time today. And you're welcome. Just excited for other people to be able to hear about this journey because I think it's something that's important to spread, as you mentioned. I really appreciate you having me on. Welcome to FYI for your innovation. Today, I'm very excited because we have Dr. Alex Marson with us today. Really excited to have him on. He's a biologist, infectious disease physician. He specializes in genetics, immunology, and CRISPR, of course, because we love talking about CRISPR on the podcast. Also, Department of Medicine at UCSF in the Bay Area, Gladstone UCSF, Institute of Genomic Immunology, Scientific Director of Human Health, Innovative Genomics Institute. So that's a mouthful, but just some of the amazing accomplishments that we've already seen from Alex. So welcome, Alex, to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So today we wanted to talk a lot about T-cells. We wanted to talk about CAR-T specifically, but we're going to get a lot, a lot broader and delve into some really interesting topics. So I think let's start with, obviously, one of your specialties has been in T-cells. So we want to do a deep dive in, but maybe let's start with kind of a step back and go to the basics and talk about what is immunotherapy. Then maybe we can talk a little bit more specifically about what is CAR-T, a form of immunotherapy, and then maybe even more broadly, and we'll get into this a little bit later, how do we genetically engineer these CAR-Ts for certain diseases that I know you focus on, things like HIV, 
primary immune deficiencies, autoimmune deficiencies, et cetera. So that's kind of like setting the stage for this really super interesting conversation that we're going to have. But maybe let's take a step back and just talk about immunotherapy and CAR-T. Sure, absolutely. So I think the immune system is there to protect the body from foreign attack. And for many, many years, decades, there's been this hope that maybe that could not only be protected against infections, but maybe could be pushed to protect us against cancer. I have to say that when I was going through med school and medical training in Boston, which wasn't that long ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was a controversial field. And it wasn't clear that the immune system would be effectively used as a treatment for cancer. But over the past 10 years, 10, 15 years, that has dramatically changed. And this field of immunotherapy has really opened up. And that's come in really two flavors. One are drugs, immunotherapy drugs, checkpoint blockade drugs that are used to take the breaks off of the immune cells, and in particular T cells in the body. And the idea is that already in many types of cancer, we're starting to see that there are T cells that can potentially protect us against cancer, but they're not working properly. And checkpoint, checkpoint blockade takes those breaks off, frees those cells up. And for certain types of cancer, the results have been unbelievable. I think that this is in many ways exemplified to the public by the success of treating Jimmy Carter, who had this advanced form of melanoma and has responded really well to checkpoint blockade. So I think that that has just totally changed the dialogue about the role of the immune system in treating cancer. And appropriately, there was a Nobel Prize that was given to immunotherapy a couple of years ago. The other thing that I know you're interested in, and I'm also extremely interested in, is the other part is not only the drugs that release the natural T cells, but can T cells, this central orchestrating cell type that's part of the immune system, actually be genetically engineered to make a super T cell that actually does something and that might be beyond what they're naturally there to do, but actually can be used to then treat and hopefully clear cancers. And CAR T cells are what have really opened up this idea. It sounds kind of science fiction, but it's now been around for years. And the results in many cases have been, again, miraculous. And, you know, I think that this was exemplified to the world by the success of treating Emily Whitehead. Emily Whitehead was going to be sent home on hospice. She had an intractable form of leukemia that hadn't responded to treatment Instead, she was enrolled in this experimental treatment, and she's been cancer-free. And the basic idea of CAR T-cells is that T-cells, which circulate in the blood, can be taken out of the blood. So like big blood draw takes the blood cell out of the body. The T-cells then go into a lab. They're grown in a sterile environment and genetically engineered. And the way that CAR T-cells are genetically engineered is they actually an artificial gene that puts an artificial receptor into those cells is delivered. So the idea, I mean, I know some of this can sound complicated, but the idea is basically that the receptor that goes on the surface of these T cells is what allows cells to search through the body. So you can think of it as sort of like a claw that goes on the surface of these cells 
or that is going around searching for a matching component on cancer cells. And T cells have a natural receptor that they use, but CAR T cells stands for chimeric antigen receptor T cell, which is something that's not found in nature. It's a chimeric or hybrid type of receptor. It looks like the natural T cell receptor on the inside, but on the outside, it is actually an antibody. We've all been hearing a lot about antibodies during COVID. Antibodies are proteins that naturally occur that can recognize a protein of interest. And so on the outside of a CAR T cell is an antibody fragment that can recognize something that can be found on the surface of cancer. So this gene that puts in the code for an artificial receptor gets delivered into a T cell. And then those CAR T cells that now have this artificial receptor on their surface can get infused into a patient through an IV drip, through a transfusion. And the cells then go in and they're directed to search throughout the body for corresponding cancer cells where this artificial receptor can recognize the cancer cell. And then once they're engaged, the T cells can do their job and start coordinating an immune response against those target cells. That is the basic idea of CAR T cells. And together, the checkpoint blockade, the CAR T cells, have really shown that T cells are a central cell type that we can engage in a number of different ways to start orchestrating responses to treat cancer. That has been dramatic for certain patients. Now the field is at a stage of really saying, what will it take to move into the patients who are still not responding to immunotherapies? What's the next phase of engineering the immune system or engaging with it to direct it more effectively to treat more patients with cancer? I would go beyond that. What else can we make these cells do to treat even broader ranges of human diseases? Yeah, there's so much to unpack there. So the first thing I would say is that we recently sat down with Tom Whitehead, actually, who's the father of Emily Whitehead, who you just mentioned, who was one of the first patients to ever receive CAR T-cell therapy. So we obviously have to acknowledge the big sacrifice that these patients put to get this research completed. So this we thought was really interesting to intersect sort of that discussion with this discussion. So sort of the patient experience or the family caregiver experience to that of the scientist who's working on these really novel and innovative therapies, which is really, really fascinating. So just wanted to highlight that. It's so important. Now there are a number of FDA approved CAR T cells, but at that time it was so highly experimental. And incredible bravery of Emily and the family to engage with this. And it's been great to hear about the success in the treatment of her. Definitely, definitely. Thanks for adding that color. And so I just wanted to talk about one differentiation between some CAR T's. So there's autologous and then there's allogeneic. So meaning you either use your own cells or you use donor-derived off-the-shelf cells. So we talked about this in our research, our Big Ideas deck last year, 2021, why there would be some benefits for one over the other. We talked about a shift. And of course, the whole field is talking about this shift, which is autologous to allogeneic. And of course, when you mention these stellar results, we're talking about the results in autologous cells. So using your own cells. But when we talk about this shift to allogeneic cells, it's really that there would be a lot of benefit, including scale, cost, potentially ability to retreat. There would be a lot of potential benefits. And of course, one potential hiccup or hurdle, which may be graft versus host disease. So maybe 
One of the things that was surfaced actually on Twitter when I mentioned that you were coming as a guest was this roadblock that we seem to be having. The allogeneic results don't seem to be as good as the autologous results. And so what do you think sort of the main challenges for getting those results to be similar? And can that challenge be overcome so that we get similar results? There's a few points about this that are really important. So maybe before I jump into allogeneic, let me jump into why there's such a big interest in allogeneic. Basically, everything I described is an incredibly complicated process. I briefly talked through this idea of autologous cell products, where a patient comes in, gets their blood drawn, the cells go into a lab facility where they get genetically engineered over a number of days. Then those patient-specific cells have to be delivered back to the patient and reinfused. So each step is a bottleneck for production. In contrast, what would look a lot more like a conventional drug is if there were an off-the-shelf product that could be manufactured in the centralized facility and it could be delivered to patients around the world. One homogenous product that would be able to be delivered to a large number of different patients rather than this patient-specific manufacturing. I really see that there are two solutions to this. Those two broad buckets might come in different flavors. One is, can we make the manufacturing for autologous products much easier? And we can talk about that. But could we make each step something that's more scalable, cheaper, and doesn't come with the manufacturing difficulties that really are slowing down the implementation and access to some of these treatments? And we can talk about a lot of that, but could we make each of the components more effective? Can we make the cells more effective so that the dose could be reduced? I mean, and in the logical extreme of that, maybe this could even be done inside of the body. If you didn't have to take the cells out and manufacture them, but you could actually inject something in where the CAR T cells get made inside or whatever cell therapies could actually get engineered inside of the body, you would also circumvent the need. So that would be an autologous product without the need for complex manufacturing. So we and others have been thinking a lot about how can we actually streamline the autologous manufacturing. There's a lot to talk about there. The other way to do this is to move into this idea of off-the-shelf treatments and, or allogeneic, where you manufacture large batches of cells that would be compatible with a large number of different patients that patients can just get treated with a dose that would look like the doses that are going into other patients. So the challenge there is really two-sided. You mentioned graft versus host. That's where the cell products, because they're immune cells, if they go into a patient and they don't match up with that patient's immune system, they can attack the patient's body and cause this graft-versus-host disease. That's one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that because they're foreign cells, the patient can recognize the cells as foreign and reject those cells, so they may not stick around long enough. The field is now in this race to figure out what are the solution to those two problems. The progress is happening, but I think there's still room for improvement, is my sense there. One would be to start engineering those foreign cells so that they are unrecognizable to the patient's immune system so that they don't get rejected as quickly. You might not want them to be completely cloaked because you still want to have some protection in case those cells get infected or something like that. But you'd want them to be able to persist in patients when they get infused. The other part is can we start 
making sure that they really are only homing in on cancer cells and that they don't in any way contact the other cells. So that, that might mean removing the cell's natural ways of recognizing what they're going to attack and just having them attack through the CAR T cell or the cancer targeting mechanism. So I think that those there's a lot of work in genetically engineering but there's still questions about what's the best cell type to start off with. There might T cells might not be, or the conventional T cells that have been the basis for other products may not be what's used there. Maybe NK cells or gamma delta, which are other T cells that might not be as prone to causing graft versus host, could be the starting point for genetic manipulation. And a number of different companies are exploring that. The other idea that is really exciting, but still not fully mature is the idea of taking a self-renewing type of cell, like a stem cell. And what's talked about the most are these induced pluripotent cells that can be made and continue to self-renew. Could you make big batches of self-renewing cells and then differentiate those into a T-cell? And that might allow for complex engineering over time. And that you could actually make many, many different edits that would protect those cells from the immune reaction, potentially prevent autoimmune disease. So I think many are exploring this, but it's still not mature. To get these cells to work effectively in an allogeneic setting is complicated. And one more reason just to add of why people have thought a lot about allogeneic is this is an important point. For many patients who are candidates for CAR T cells, they've already undergone a number of different chemotherapies and their immune system might not be fully functional. So there's some appeal to potentially take really healthy blood donors who have good T cells that have been optimized if we could use those. So I think that there is a strong motivation to explore these, but there's also complications of if something goes wrong with a batch or if there's rare events in a big batch, then the whole product is potentially under some concern. And we just saw that as something that was a bit of a bottleneck for the field in a recent process of around an allogene product, which is a company that is manufacturing large vats of allogeneic products. There's the motivation to improve manufacturing and improve access is strong. And I think it's really important that the field continue to go down both roads of trying to make allogeneic products safer, more effective, and more easy to manufacture, and say, what can we do to push the ease and access to autologous products as well? I'm happy you brought up allergen because that was probably going to come up anyway. It comes up in a lot of discussions lately. Obviously, they announced that the patient on their trial had a chromosomal abnormality. We didn't get too, too many details or too much detail about what that exactly meant. A lot of people speculated that maybe it was a translocation, but we don't exactly know what that meant. But it did cause for a lot of concern. I think one huge concern was that their whole pipeline was on hold, not just one trial. Of course, there's some differentiation between them and other companies or even academic labs working on this because they use tail proteins not CRISPR. So that's one important distinction. But I'm curious when you hear about this, is this double-stranded break that we hear about a lot now where there's some concern that that causes too many complications in the editing process? Or what sort of are your main thoughts when you think about this hold? Obviously, the hold has now been lifted, but for the field in general, sort of moving forward, what are your main thoughts on what to make of this safety issue? I think it's really important that the hold is lifted, and I think that the concerns are somewhat mitigated. So I think that that's the first point that it's important to make. I also think it's important 
for the field to recognize that when we're doing gene editing, these are complicated processes. And it doesn't matter whether it's a virus, which has its concerns, and we can talk about the difference of virus versus some of these nuclease-based gene editings. But viruses that are currently used in CAR T-cells, retrovirus and lentivirus, we know that those mechanisms of inserting these genes insert genes in a non-targeted manner, and there can be unexpected effects, positive or negative, of where those genes go into the genome, and that can affect how these products turn out. So I still think that overwhelmingly, what we're seeing is that the benefits outweigh the risks, but it's something that we have to be clear-eyed about. And I think likewise, when we think about introducing cuts, which are the basis for gene editing, whether it's with tail ends or CRISPRs. So I do think that the field has gotten better and better at making higher in specificity cutting enzymes. And so I think that that's an area of progress. There are ways that these cuts can cause unexpected events. Now, I think that's especially true when we start introducing cuts at multiple sites in the genome. And that we know that and this has been shown in multiple settings that that is overwhelmingly likely to cause translocations where those two cuts get rearranged in non-natural ways. Many of those translocations will be neutral. Some of them will cause the cells to fade out and be negative, but some of them could potentially be risky and we have to be clear-eyed about making sure that in a patient-specific way, the risks outweigh the benefits. And we should think creatively about how do we do everything in our power to mitigate those an approach that we have taken in my lab and a company that I'm involved with, Arsenal, is to use one high specificity cut and then see maybe we can insert large genes that do multiple things into one side of the genome rather than being dependent on many different cuts. And that should reduce the risk of translocations. So I think we have to think carefully about risks and benefits in each of these settings. And I think the technologies are still emerging, but lots of possibilities. So there's been a few concerns that we've seen. Allogene is one of them, but several concerns have come onto the scene about chromosomal abnormalities or unintended consequences to the genome. I'm just curious how you think about that from a CAR-T or more broadly an oncology perspective. This is an important question that many of us are considering. I think early on in CRISPR, there was a lot of attention on off-target editing. And I think that the field has made a tremendous amount of progress. That's not gone as a concern, but the specificity of cuts has gotten better and better. Now, even if you cut at the right site, there can be unintended chromosomal consequences. This is compounded if you try to introduce multiple double-stranded breaks at the same time, as was done in Carl June and others' study of CRISPR-edited cells that actually went into patients. And not unexpectedly, when they introduced multiple CRISPR cuts at the same time, they found translocations. So one way to think about it, and this is what that group did, was actually just to track those and show that they didn't confer, in that study at least, any negative health effects. Those cells that had translocations seemed to actually be selected against and be less fit over time at those particular locations. Now, some translocations could cause dangerous or proliferative effects, And so the specific sites that are used and the specific translocations that result need to be considered. Now, even with a single cut, that problem is lessened than compared to multiple cuts, but there can still be unexpected chromosomal events. And a number of groups have seen in preclinical models, including us, 
that cutting at one site, we saw it with a double cut at the same site in a mouse model. Other groups have seen this in other systems, even with single cuts, that you can get chromosomal abnormalities. And I think that, again, this will need to be measured closely. And this problem likely varies from site to site based on a number of the features at that site, and perhaps also editing techniques. So I think there's a few problems. One will be figuring out the right site. The other is coming up with better and more sensitive measurements to actually look in detail for a variety of unintended chromosomal effects and to be able to measure them clinically and to really be looking actively for these. I think the promise of getting specific editing is enormous and picking a specific site, but they're introducing double strand and the breaks in the genome comes with some risks that I think can be carefully tested for, especially as technologies for testing get better over time and will need to be watched and learned from clinical experience over time. And maybe new technologies will have significant improvement effects. I know I did an analysis using Crispresso to look at the amplicon sequence data where you can actually see that if you use, and this is obviously, as you mentioned, for a specific site and a specific disease, but if you look at the data from a Cas9, a base, and a prime editor, although again, these it's not really comparing apples to apples because they weren't the same diseases, you can just see that new tools might be cleaner may have better efficiency than some of the sort of legendary or older tools, shall we say. I think there will be opportunities for technological improvement, also measurement improvement. Some of these will need to be looked at with orthogonal technologies, might be missed even with short read technologies if they're not designed carefully to look for these types of abnormalities. And I think each different technology will come with its own risks and rewards. And I think we'll need to pick the right technology to go after the specific gene edit that makes sense for different disease indications. So I think it's good to have an expanding set of opportunities of how we introduce targeted gene edits. Yeah, I think that's a really good perspective and makes sense. And I think we'd be remiss just to mention that just this week, the anti-CD19 CAR-T paper came out in Nature. Just on not only are we expanding tools, we're also potentially expanding disease indications that we can target. So this one specifically was talking about lupus, but don't know if you've seen it. Obviously, you're just kind of coming back into the swing of things after a vacation, but would love any thoughts you have just on different indications and how CAR-T can play a big role outside of the cancer arena. This is super exciting for the field. I think that we've seen now FDA-approved cancer therapies, but those of us who work in this field don't want it to end there. I think there's enormous opportunities to take the lessons learned from cancer and expand. I think inflammatory and autoimmune diseases are next. And there's a number of approaches. This is an exciting one of potentially eliminating autoreactive B cells with CAR T cells. And that's one approach. The other would be starting to think about regulatory T cells or other types of genetically engineered cells that could be used to target organ-specific inflammation. And there's probably others. But I think the broader idea of using cellular therapies for an expanding set of diseases beyond cancer is enormously promising. And I think that that's where we'll see progress in the years ahead. Agreed. I think the future is really bright. So just excited to see the continued advancements from your lab and others. So so you mentioned delivery. That's a big one. So there's been some exciting discoveries in delivery recently with EVLPs from David Liu's lab, a recent paper. Also, I think I saw a recent paper from Feng Zhang's lab on virus-like particles as well, which look pretty interesting, or viral-like particles, which seem pretty interesting. So I know you also showed 
we just did one with as a collaboration with Jennifer Denham's lab too. So it's definitely an area of great interest of how do we get better at delivering components, gene editing components, new genes into cells in a targeted way outside of the body. And eventually, I mean, I think the David's work, David Liu's recent work with VLPs going inside the body, really exciting to think about what directions this will open up for the field. Again, this idea of if we can del- start delivering things inside the body, the manufacturing all of a sudden becomes a totally different process. Yeah, and I think that that paper was a really interesting paper because you laid out sort of the whole GMP process, which was interesting for me, at least, on the non-viral CAR T-cell manufacturing, which was, I thought, really interesting. And obviously, you demonstrated the 46 to 62% knock-in efficiency, which looked really great. So it's an exciting collaboration that we're certainly watching on this end, at least. I guess there's a few different ones that we're talking about. One was this non-viral knock-in that we're now using to move towards GMP manufacturing CAR T-cells and other cell products. Another was really a project led by Jennifer Doudna's lab and a really talented postdoc there, Jenny Hamilton, working with a grad student, Connor Tushita. They developed a viral-like particle system that allows us to actually combine some aspects of viral delivery with delivering CRISPR RNPs. So I think there's a few different threads moving forward how cells can be manufactured in different clinical settings. It's really, really interesting. And it's great to see everyone partnering together to move the field forward. Another thing that I saw that you may be working on as well, which I thought was really interesting, was carpooling. First of all, just because the name is great. So this can accelerate the design for CAR T-cells. But would love to know a little bit more about it, what it is, and maybe how it can improve treatments for patients. So again, I laid out what this idea of CARs are. They are these chimeric receptors that don't exist in nature. And the cars that we've seen so far have largely been based on really smart and promising hypotheses about which components you want to link together to elicit desirable T-cell response when those cells are engaged with a cancer cell. But that's just what they are. Those are smart hypotheses. So I've kind of been obsessive about this idea. Can we move beyond hypothesis into really high throughput discovery and testing so that we can unleash the full power of what's out there in biology and what's accessible with synthetic DNA programs to make cells behave exactly how we want to make them more effective treatments for cancer and for other diseases. So carpooling is one important avenue in this approach of using really high throughput genomic technologies. And this was work that was led by a really talented postdoc who's jointly mentored by me and Cole Roybal and Jeff Bluestone. His name is Dan Goodman, and he came out of George Church's lab, and he came in having done really high-throughput DNA synthesis and modification in bacteria and wanted to bring the same approach to T-cells. And the idea was maybe instead of making a guess about what cars could look like, why not test many different cars in parallel? And so what he did was he started stitching together lots of different signaling domains to see which ones make T-cells behave in different ways. And then rather than test them one at a time, he tests them in a pool. And I think this is a strategy that we've really landed on and has opened up over the past decade of if you start testing things in pools, you really see head-to-head which are the winners. You really are racing cells against each other to see, and you can pick out the ones that win in whatever metric you care about. 
And so now he's making these libraries of cars and testing, seeing which are the winners in a number of different contexts to try to discover a new architecture for this car. We also like the name a lot. And it was actually interesting. At exactly the same time we were submitting this paper, another paper came out that also calls Carpool from a group at MIT. And I think that a few different groups are really converging on this idea of pool technologies to accelerate the design of cars. We're really excited about this. I'll say one thing that I've been thinking a lot about, and this is complicated from a regulatory perspective. So far, we've been testing, making these car pools and testing either in vitro and dishes or in animal models. One thing that I would think is really worth some serious thought for the field, and I've talked to a number of investigators about this, is what would it take to start moving into human clinical trials? And maybe for certain, in certain contexts with carefully curated car pools, patients, first of all, may see a benefit. Maybe some combination of cars would actually be useful. But also, at the same time, the field would also learn by studying which cars are actually effective by looking inside tumor biopsies more rapidly about just iterating towards the car designs or combination of car designs that are more effective for patients where there's currently not yet an effective car that we know about. So I really think that we should be thinking about this as a research tool, but potentially also moving towards a therapeutic or experimental therapeutic strategy. So just to shift gears a little bit, we're talking a ton about CAR-T and how important they are and some of the innovations behind it. We've touched on this a little bit about CRISPR gene editing and its intersection with CAR-T, but maybe if we can expand. So how are we using CRISPR to really sort of take advantage of all the capabilities of CAR-T cell therapies? One example that I've heard of and read about would be T-cell exhaustion can be a problem. And so some companies are thinking about knocking out a PD-1 to see if that could potentially help with T-cell exhaustion. So do you have any sort of similar examples or how are you using CRISPR to potentially get even more out of the CAR T-cells than previously thought possible? So this is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and is really this cornerstone of the lab and a lot of the work that I'm involved with, both academically and in the industry. So I think it's really worth mentioning as a starting point that 2012, which is now 10 years ago, was the year that Emily Whitehead got treated with CAR T-cells. It's also the year that Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier published a paper about CRISPR enzymes in science that lit the world up and showed us that CRISPR could be used as a DNA editing technology. So over this past decade, I think what we have seen is that there is an unbelievably powerful intersection of these two things. The ability to rewrite DNA sequences in cells flexibly, easily with CRISPR, and a renewed and a new belief that cells, the genetically engineered cells, can actually be a medicine, can be a way to treat human disease. And now we have the ability to go in and actually think about going into the underlying DNA source code that controls the behavior of these cells, and what can we do to it to exactly program these cells to have very precise behaviors that we care about. In the long run, we'd like to be able to go in with CRISPR and say, can we program what these cells will recognize, where they will home in the body, what they will do when they get there. 
what will make them effective at clearing the tumor, but not harm the rest of the body. That is what it would really take to make precise genetically engineered treatments for cancer. You can imagine, by analogy, CRISPR engineering cells for autoimmune diseases, infectious diseases. We're thinking about neuroinflammation, cardiovascular disease. So there's a big range. But the key is, can we go in and have the tools to make these precise edits to the underlying DNA code? And CRISPR offers us that. So that is where my lab has heavily invested in, in moving to the ability to take a specific site in the DNA code and be able to rewrite a huge stretch of it without the need for any viral vectors. It's worth mentioning why that's so important. The CAR T cells that were used to treat Emily Whitehead use a viral vector. So what they do is they actually, the gene that makes that CAR gets inserted through something that is based on basically HIV, and it co-ops those properties of HIV as using the virus as a delivery system, taking its ability to deliver DNA into a cell. But when it does it, it doesn't do it in a precise way. It drops the DNA into a non-targeted site in the genome with variable numbers of how many copies get delivered. So it's not very precise. Plus, because these are infectious agents, the viruses are expensive to make and can be a big bottleneck to bringing a new drug to market. So we'd like to have something that doesn't rely on virus and is precise. And CRISPR gives us exactly that. We have figured out a way to deliver CRISPR into a human T cell and co-deliver it with an extra piece of DNA so that we can effectively paste in a new DNA sequence at that cut site that is made by CRISPR. This is a flexible, easy-to-use tool, both for research purposes and something that we're actively moving towards CRISPR-edited cell therapies for a number of different diseases. That has really raised the question of, if you can take a site in the genome and rewrite thousands of different nucleotides, A, T's, and C's, and G's around that, how do we learn the lesson about what we want to do? You mentioned the idea of getting rid of PD-1. We explored that, and that's something that many groups have thought about. I'm really not convinced that that's the best thing we can do to boost the function of these cells. We'd like to make them resistant to exhaustion. We'd like to make them more effective. But how do we know which DNA we want to either delete or add with the CRISPR tools that are now available? And again, I come back to this idea of high-throughput genomics as the answer that I have settled on. So we have also been using CRISPR as a technology to do these experiments at incredibly high scale. And now we can do, in one experiment, we can use CRISPR in human T cells to disrupt every different gene in the genome in a different cell in one pool, and then we race those cells against each other and see which ones have the properties we care about. And so we're quickly using CRISPR not only as the manufacturing process, but really as the Rosetta Stone that allows us to understand the rules about which genes we want to either delete or add so that we can start moving towards more rationally designed synthetic biology products that we can then insert to make that DNA code behave exactly how we want. That's where I see the opportunity to bring CRISPR discovery platforms together with CRISPR manufacturing. A lot of that's happening in the lab. We've also been moving this forward towards actual clinical products through a company that I helped to co-found called Arsenal Biosciences that has continued to really develop the non-viral manufacturing platform that I have, now is able to do many, many, up to I think over 10 KB of DNA sequences that it can rewrite in a non-viral platform. 
but has also really built a high-throughput discovery engine to optimize the synthetic programs that we put in and now can do thousands of different experiments on a robotic platform to quickly learn which are the DNA sequences that are most effective at making cell medicines. So I think that this is what the pharmaceutical industry of the future is going to look like for cell therapy. The same way that, that pharmaceutical companies have small molecule screens, cell therapy companies will need to have the ability to screen for DNA sequences to start really learning the rules of how every nucleotide tunes the function of cells and shapes their ability to treat disease. Speaking of the intersection of CAR-T and CRISPR and all these exciting new innovations, I would be remiss not to talk about sort of the current biotech market. It seems like technology is continuing to be innovated on, improved, science is only getting better, but stocks are falling. I guess you could say that stock prices are dropping while company fundamentals and the science is really staying consistent or improving. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that from maybe the scientific perspective or the macro perspective. And then sort of the reason I want to get into this question is it seems like there's been a plethora of new innovation in terms of creating institutes. You were at the forefront of this, creating the Gladstone Institute of Immunology. So I'd love to hear sort of your perspective on what's going on with the broader market and also what propelled you to creating an institute and why do you think that's sort of been the trend currently? I don't know how to answer the first question. I actually would love your thoughts on this too. I mean, I remain incredibly bullish on this idea that we are still very much on a rapid upswing of what's possible in these emerging technologies. I think we've seen this with mRNA vaccines. This is not hypothetical, this idea of genomic medicine, whether it's mRNA or DNA editing or cell therapies. Our knowledge of genetic sequences and our ability to deliver targeted genomic medicines to instruct the immune system is only growing. And so to me, it's just a matter of time until this promise plays out. And I know that medicine has often gotten into the cycle where we overpromise, but I don't see it the same. You know, I think that there are also moments of true inflection. And I think we're in one of those. I think that we are now really seeing that there's been so much stored investment in technologies, understanding the genome, manipulating the genome, that I think over this is going to be a decade where we continue to see rapid progress. So I see this as a market fluctuation that's an overcorrection, maybe connected to uncertainties about macroeconomic features that have nothing to do with bioengineering. But I remain enormously excited about the potential. And I think that this is something that the field will weather and we will see continued opportunities. You asked about the other side, that's the sort of moving towards public markets and the sort of fluctuations of public opinion. On the other side, on the academic side, I continue to see academics and my role as an academic as the earliest possible stage of exploring new ideas. We don't know what's going to be valuable from a market perspective, but asking fundamental questions about how biology works and exploring the most out there ideas about what might work to improve human health is what I take as my academic mission. And I think that we're entering into a phase where many of the most exciting possibilities happen at the intersection space between fields. And that's always been 
where I've seen possibility, but I think that that's more and more. I've talked about the convergence of 2012, of how their CRISPR field was invented, and we saw this new promise of genetically engineered cell therapies. Now we've also talked about the high throughput experiments where we're not doing experiments one at a time, but we're doing thousands and thousands of experiments at a time. That requires computational ability. This is no longer something that can just be analyzed by intuition. It really requires sophisticated computer power. So now all of a sudden we need to bring together people with expertise in new genome editing technologies, DNA sequencing technologies, computational ability, classical immunology knowledge and the ability to test these cells, and the clinicians, the people who know how to bring innovative cell products to a clinical trial to go through the regulatory process, interface with the FDA. All this needs to happen in a conversation. And that goes beyond what any individual lab is capable of. And I still think that it can't all be handed off to companies either, because a lot of this, we're, we're still exploring space that we want to move into uncharted territory. We're not immediately seeing things that are ready to be profitable products. So I think there's an enormous opportunity for these philanthropically funded institutes. And this has been the motivation for what we've created over the past couple of years, which is a Bay Area partnership, the Institute of Genomic Immunology. This is a partnership between UCSF, which is a large state academic medical center, and a small privately funded research institute, the Gladstone Institute, a nonprofit. By putting these things together, we're creating an ecosystem where we can start bringing together different types of scientific investigators with all the knowledge that I talked about and creating a playground for innovation. We're in the infancy now. We're still actively looking for philanthropic partners and building this. But I think that the potential has attracted interest from a group of investigators that are people that I want to work with, incredibly creative investigators without a bias towards generating, towards trying to bring in junior people from a diverse group of scientific backgrounds and other backgrounds and bringing them together to create in a collaborative environment where insights that we get in the lab from high throughput discovery science has a path to go all the way into clinical trials. And we hope in the coming years that there'll be a number of clinical trials where these basic science discoveries can actually go and help patients that we're seeing in the clinic. Great. I wish we had more time to talk because I feel like there's so much more to unpack. But thank you so much for coming on today, Alex, and look forward to seeing more from the lab and from the Institute and staying in touch. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great to talk with you. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.